Good afternoon, everyone. I'm Ian Golden. I'm the director of the 21st Century School, and I'm delighted uh, that you've come to this seminar, and I hope you'll come to many others. This is a very interesting theme that uh, we're initiating this term, and I want to thank uh, David Roden and Alison Suri, Avril, and others that have worked on putting this together. Uh, the concept is getting to zero. And it's inspired by our desire to get to zero on uh, nuclear weapons, but also in other dimensions, like uh, zero poverty, uh, zero pandemic, or zero disease, and zero carbon emissions. Uh, and it's the politics and the art of getting to zero that uh, is actually very interesting uh, across these multiple dimensions. This is an interdisciplinary school. We work on all of these issues uh, in different parts of the school. Uh, and it's a way of us helping uh, the intellectuals working in these areas and ourselves to begin to join some of the dots as well and think about whether there's learning from one area that we can then pass on to another area on these. And as uh, I'm sure we'll hear as we start uh, on um, zero charts of <laughs> zero nuclear, uh, that as one gets to zero, one also gets into quite dangerous environments uh, in some areas. And that's certainly true of nuclear, but it would be true on diseases as well. Uh, and for example, it's true on smallpox. Uh, if one smallpox uh, virus breaks out now, everyone will be vulnerable because we have got to zero. So there's lots of issues which come out uh, from that, uh, which I think are absolutely fascinating, and um, I'm really looking forward to the output of this. It will be recorded. Uh, there will be a blog on it, so I encourage you all to engage with the blog. Uh, there's the seminars each week on the, the themes which relate to nuclear, uh, climate change, poverty, and pandemics. Uh, but there are also two lectures that I would encourage you to come to if you're interested in these topics. The one is the 20th of October, uh, where Jeff Sachs, who really does believe in zero poverty, uh, is talking at 5 o'clock. Uh, sorry, 5.30 at the National History Museum. And uh, on the 12th of November, Mohammed El Aryan, who's really a leading thinker on financial markets, uh, will talk about trying to get towards zero financial crisis, or us living with them uh, as the alternative. So, uh, <laughs> another zero chance. But if, if the end of this seminar series, we just think there's zero chance of getting to zero, that would be a terribly dismal uh, sub-conclusion. Uh, but perhaps uh, that's what the evidence will suggest. So um, without further ado, I'd like to give the floor to David Roden. David's one of the three co-directors of our uh, Oxford Institute for Ethics, Law and Armed Conflict. It's one of the 15 institutes currently in the school, co-director with Jennifer Welsh and uh, Dalva Pandey. And uh, David has been so kind in helping us move this along. Uh, we'll also be so kind as to chair this session. <laughs> Thank you. That's great. Thank you very much, Ian. Um, well, one of the great benefits of being uh, involved in the school is giving the opportunity to uh, engage in events like this. And uh, I hope that you'll agree that this is going to be a very exciting series of uh, seminars around this theme of getting to zero. It's, of course, very exciting and pertinent for the work that we're doing uh, within the Institute for Ethics, Law and Armed Conflict as we think about the implications for um, the control of nuclear weapons. But it's terrific to be able to think about these issues in the context of, um, of interdisciplinary um, uh, discussion and the context of other uh, very challenging policy issues as well, um, as, as Ian has, uh, has indicated. Um, it's my great pleasure today to introduce to you uh, two terrific speakers on this topic. 
Um, our main speaker is uh, Professor Dick Price, who joins <coughs> us from the University of British Columbia. Um, he did his uh, PhD at Cornell University and has written very, very broadly on normative issues within international relations. Uh, particularly, he's very well known for his work on chemical weapons and wrote a very important book on that topic, uh, The Chemical Weapons Taboo, which was published by Cornell University Press in 1997. And more recently, he's published two edited volumes, uh, The United Nations and Global Security, 2004, and Moral Limit and the Possibility of World Politics, uh, 2008. Uh, he's also the re recipient of the rather um, ominously or aggressively titled Killam Teaching Prize at the University of British Columbia. <laughs> and, uh, I'm sure that many of us feel that way about undergraduates many of the time. I hope that that doesn't reflect any uh, official uh, policy or attitude um, of the University of British Columbia. Um, after uh, uh, Dick's comments, um, we will have a, a brief introduction to the discussion by uh, Teresa Dunworth, who joins us from the University of Auckland Law School. Uh, particularly um, happy to, to welcome uh, Tressa uh, because um, I, that was my old uh, alma mater. Uh, I, spent, uh, I spent two years at the uh, University of Auckland uh, Law School and, and very, uh, very pleasant years they were uh, uh, too. Um, uh, Tressa is a graduate of, uh, of both Auckland and, and Harvard. Um, and she also spent four years at The Hague, uh, working first with the Harvard Sussex Program on Arms Control and Arms Limitation, and after that with the Organization for the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons. Uh, so she's also extremely well, uh, well equipped to, um, uh, to provide uh, insights on this debate. So without any further ado, I'll, uh, I'll hand it over <coughs> to you, uh, Dick, to address today's question. Well, thank you. I want to thank you for the invite and Avril and, and others for uh, having me here. It was really a pleasure to come here, um, obviously to uh, hopefully make some new acquaintances among so many people that are interested in all the things that bring us here, and maybe some older acquaintances as well. Uh, but it also was a good uh, spur for me to draw together three different trajectories of my own research, really over the last 10 or 15 years and pull them together in a more focused way and see what I would uh, think about getting to zero in a focused kind of way. So I found this really uh, intriguing possibility to think in a more broad way. And what I'm going to do today is more of a table setting kind of exercise that will hopefully catch, uh, cast a fairly broad net that will uh, interest as many of you as possible rather than zeroing in on just uh, one or two particular issues uh, such as one or two weapons bans. Um, I did want to say before beginning that I may be uh, getting to my own zeros today. I got zero sleep on the airplane today. So I think I'm one hour 27 now uh, awake consecutively. So I'm hoping that the next 45 minutes are not you watching me getting to zero <laughs> in terms of how cohesive and coherent I may be. But uh, hopefully the tea I just had will uh, suffice to get me through. Um, let me give you a sense of what those three trajectories of my own work are and how I'll draw from them, and the literatures in those areas, it's not just my own work I'm drawing from, but the literatures that I drew from. And the first is uh, issue, if you're engaged in an advocacy campaign of some kind, what kind of tactics are you going to use for how you're even going to frame the issue in the first place? That's the first batch of issues that I want to look at. And obviously we're going to look at one particular way of framing an issue, that is getting to zero. Uh, the second issue is, after you've got an issue off the ground, you may face immediate hurdles that some of the key players on the issue may be in opposition. So there's a set of diplomatic dilemmas that may be involved. 
and I'll spend a bit of time on uh, working through just a few of those, not all that we could imagine, uh, but a few that strike me as particularly important. And then the third set of issues uh, I'll be drawing from my latest work, uh, where I went from empirical analyses of how you get norms to ethical assessments of knowing when you've gone far enough or when you perhaps are pushing too far, that you may be too idealistic. And zero is a nice candidate for, I think, working through uh, some of these issues. And so time permitting, I'll, I'll turn to the ethical questions. I may find them a little short of time, but I'll do my best to get through them all. Before I get started, there's a variety of issues I think we need to think about for anybody who's looking at a zero kind of initiative in a whole variety of ways. And there's some preliminary issues I think we have to uh, just put out there, not that I'm going to spend a lot of time working through them on individual issues. And one way, useful way for me to think about these is think about the phases of norm development. Not every single uh, zero campaign necessarily means a norm in the standard sense. I can think of things in the medical and health fields that don't necessarily need norm standard setting in the conventional way we might think of a treaty. Uh, but many of them do, at least. Uh, and some will just involve informal norms. To get those off the ground, you first have to have an agenda setting exercise. And this is just simply identifying that there is a problem in the first place. <coughs> it's defining it, it's giving it a name. It's all these things that are involved in just putting something on the agenda that is now uh, an issue and a problem to be dealt with. After that's been done, then you've got to devise, well, what's the solution to that problem that you've just identified? Often it's an international treaty, that's uh, typically what we tend to do in the modern period. Uh, it's not the only way, of course, that you can uh, design solutions, all kinds of different ways. You might have a disease eradication campaign that doesn't require a treaty. Uh, you might have environmental norms that are done more through education than a treaty. So there's lots of ways in which we can do this. Uh, but this is where I'll locate the second part of, of my talk after I talk about agenda setting, is some of the dilemmas uh, if you have opposition from major players involved in the issue. Thirdly, we get into issues that have to deal with implementation. That is, you've actually designed what the solution is, but now you have to put it into place and ensure that it's implemented. And here, scholars have looked at all kinds of uh, things. There's a lot of research now in looking at the trajectory from merely signing on, you know, verbally saying, yes, we'll abide by this new norm, and then deepening that commitment into actual practices and behavior, and then even internalizing it in such ways that it becomes a pretty taken-for-granted kind of way of going about doing things. So there's lots of range that you can analyze any given issue uh, along those metrics. And I suspect that some of the other talks you may have in the series may focus in on uh, one or more of those uh, dimensions of implementation. I'm not going to really say anything about that uh, here today. After implementation, then there is monitoring to make sure that the players involved in this uh, issue are in fact living up to any commitments. Uh, can have all kinds of different monitors. You can have states, international organizations like IAEA, you can have civil society groups as now happens with the Landmines Convention. All kinds of different actors are now engaged in monitoring. You then have enforcement. What if there are the monitors discover that somebody's engaged in violations of an issue. Uh, what are the enforcement mechanisms, formal or ad hoc or otherwise, uh, that can be uh, part of this story? These are all part of the things that in the literature are generally treated under the umbrella of compliance kinds of issues. 
And for any given issue, this could be what would focus all of our energies for a talk. Right, we're going to talk about problems of compliance with a comprehensive test ban treaty and verification. And that could be the big issue. Okay? And at any given issue, where you may want to focus might differ. So again, I'm just trying to set the table of the range of possibilities for any issue that we really might want to uh, consider and think uh, could be vital on a given set of concerns. Finally, I would put another one, uh, which I became interested in a few years ago, which is there's kind of a tendency in the literature to have a unilateral or uni trajectory uh, when you're talking about norms as if they only go one way and that's getting better and stronger. And of course, some norms don't. They get violated, they fade away, they decay. Um, and if you're going to analyze one of these uh, initiatives, sometimes at some point you may hit a point where the, the expression of that norm or an institution is in fact in disarray, it's in decay. And I would argue, for example, that that's the state we're in with the NPT, that it's in a, a state of slow decay, it's an erosion, it's suffering a legitimation crisis for which new uh, uh, sorts of solutions are clearly required in my view, unless you simply want to see the road of gradual increase of number of nuclear powers. Okay? You have, I think, three other talks in the series on no nuclear weapons, so I'm not going to say a whole lot more. I'm very happy to talk at much more length uh, about that issue in the Q&A if people are interested on um, why I think that's the case with the NPT. So what I'm going to do mostly in the talk, and this is just to sort of set the stage, is focus on these first two when I'm talking about you know, empirical issues with respect to how you get an issue on the agenda, and then what are some of the dilemmas involved in making it happen with the key <coughs> stakeholders involved, states, corporations, depending on your issue. And then, time permitting, I'll say some words on some of the ethics involved. Okay. There's a second proviso um, that I want to put out there, which is, for those of us in the field of international relations, we have lots of theories as to why you may get new international norms and why you may get compliance or not with those international norms. And I want to just run through three of the dominant theories that we have for those of you who don't work in the field of international relations. This will be old hat for those of you in the field. Uh, we have three, I think, very powerful kinds of explanations for why you get norms in the international system and why states and other actors uh, may abide by them. One is simply because you're forced to. Uh, realist theories of international relations tend to privilege material power, or critical theories tend to privilege other sorts of power. But the basic idea is you get norms that favor the powerful and people abide because they're forced to, or they suffer very severe consequences. Uh, the neoliberal or rationalist tradition, as it's called in, in the US, a rational choice tradition, uh, points instead to the rise of norms simply because it's in the mutual interest of those parties. They bargain, uh, it's in their self-interest, it's in their mutual interest, so you can get cooperation. Okay? Very big, prominent explanation of why you can get new norms and compliance with them. Okay? Finally, a constructivist research program argues that there is a third pathway, which has uh, to do more with you will get a norm because the actors involved think it's the right thing to do. So speaking more about concerns of legitimacy, justice, uh, morality, uh, socialization, those sorts of phenomena. Okay? So three very distinct kinds of explanations. And these certainly aren't the only ones in the literature. There are plenty more. I'm just drawing three of the most prominent. I raise this simply because for each of those phases that I just went through, those six phases of a given norm, 
you could tell at the minimum three pretty powerful stories in each of those phases and have pretty sharp debates about them. And I don't have the time to do that. So I'm not going to give you, you know, 18 different stories today and you know, the next 20 minutes. I just want to map out what that could look like. And for those of you working on these issues, at a minimum, uh, some of the things that I think uh, would be in the ballpark of being considered. Uh, most of mine are going to, as I said, focus on those first two issues from the last slide. And most of what I'll talk about theoretically is going to come from uh, the work uh, and the tradition that I come from, which is constructivism. Not exclusively, but that's the work that I know best, and I want to emphasize some of the insights uh, of that literature today. So I'm well aware there are alternative accounts, and, and we may hear some uh, in the discussion period, and I'm happy uh, to deal with them. Okay. Final proviso. Depending on how you define success, if your question is, how do you get to zero? How can you have a successful advocacy campaign or movement or initiative? You have to define what you mean by success. And zero, by definition, almost seems to solve that problem. We're talking about zero. But you know, upon immediate <coughs> reflection, it becomes quite apparent that it's more complicated than that. The metric of success isn't always obvious, even when you're talking about zero. For one, even in, uh, in weapons issues, for example, you could be talking about zero use, zero possession, zero trade, zero export. There's a whole range of zeros that you could be talking about, some of which uh, may be much tougher to crack uh, than others. Uh, we talk about eradication campaigns with diseases. You could talk about zero outbreaks or zero pandemics or zero casualties. There are different metrics you could use. I just read an interesting story where one prominent physician said that the goal of the new migraine research is a 50% reduction. And I thought, well, I don't suffer from migraines. I'm pretty glad I don't because that's not getting anywhere near to zero as far as I'm concerned. But for them, that would be a tremendous success. So we've got to define, obviously, what we mean by success. We also have to define what the prohibitive activity is in very precise ways. The most infamous case that we've seen with the rise of the Bush administration is what depicted in a comic strip I'm about to show, which actually was uh, making light of the situation two British soldiers found themselves when they were taken prisoner. And that is, tell the British prisoners they can relax, they'll be questioned using only CIA-approved enhanced interrogation techniques. That is, not torture. Okay? And I put that up there because how you define torture or not will have a big impact on whether you say that campaign against torture is being successful or not. An obvious point, but when you're talking about models in the weapons area that many people have thought we should use as models for all kinds of other initiatives, it's taken for granted that you've got a zero. So you've got a zero on the prohibition of landmines or chemical weapons or biological weapons. But what all that obscures is the incredible politics behind what, get def what gets defined into those categories. There are incredible fights over what gets defined as a chemical weapon, or as a biological weapon, or as a landmine, or as a cluster munition. Just let me give one example. That's an anti-personnel landmine. That's banned by the Landmines Convention in 1997. <coughs> What's not banned by that convention? Anti-tank mines currently wreaking havoc in Afghanistan. They're designed to explode with thousands of pounds of pressure, not just somebody's footfall. What's also not banned? Command-detonated 
types of mines. So if somebody's actually pulling the trigger, they're physically there like the claymore. Okay. IEDs, improvised explosive devices, doing damage by the day in Afghanistan and Iraq, those aren't banned by the landline treaty, <coughs> nor are cluster munitions. This created an incredible fight back in the 1990s that split the landmine movement. Jody Williams went one way and said, we're not going after cluster bombs because we'll probably fail. She got a Nobel Prize for her efforts. But the rest of the campaigners said, well, after this one, we're going after cluster bombs. So they went after cluster bombs, and they got a success. Um, but what's interesting is if you, even if you look at that and say, now we've got another model, there are critics of the cluster munition treaty. Why are there critics of that? Well, you don't have to obviously spend a lot of time on this, but this is how it's defined in the convention. This tells you what's not included in the treaty. Okay? <coughs> Each munition contains fewer than 10 explosive sub-munitions, weighs more than four kilograms, designed to detect and engage a single target object, equipped with an electronic self-discover. That leaves a wide scope for a lot of things out there. So if you try and use something like these as a model and say, here's a model of a success, well, there's a lot of politics involved in just defining what that thing, what that practice is in the first place. Okay? So any looking at these has to be very careful and very specific, I think, about how you operationalize it. And you really have to be able to defend it, I think, at the end of the day, which gets us into questions like ethics. So let me get into the heart of the talk. And the first thing I'm going to talk about in thinking about empirical issues with getting to zero is simply defining an issue in the first place and getting it on to the international agenda somehow. At first blush, the tactic of getting to zero would seem to recommend itself in very important respects, uh, given what the literature has to say. The literature on advocacy campaigns identifies that a key ingredient for success, that all other things being equal, will tend to lead one advocacy campaign to, great, campaign to greater success than another, is the simplicity and the clarity of the issue and the message. Okay? And I was very interested to hear that poverty reduction is one of the campaigns, because if, if you compare something like poverty reduction and how complex the causes of poverty are, is it neo-colonialism, is it indeed colonialism, is it uh, corruption of current regimes, is it, you know, it gets pretty muddled pretty quickly. Just the nature of the problem, let alone the solution. If you compare that to the landmines issue, pretty simple. People die well after wars are done because somebody planted a landmine. Solution, stop planting those landmines. Okay. So a straightforward cause-effect kind of relationship tends to have uh, greater power, tends to have uh, lend itself, I think, more easily to the rapid kind of success model, at least. This is one reason why in 1997 I was asked uh, to present at the Landmines Conference and speak to what many felt at the time would be the new issue. It would be the new zero in 1997. And that was small arms and light weapons. The Canadian government and many others who had just gotten their success in landmines said, what's next? And a variety of people chose small arms and light weapons. I rained on the parade a little bit, unfortunately, precisely because of uh, this and one other uh, feature I'll speak to later, that it was too muddled an issue, that it doesn't have the simplicity and clarity to model after the issue like landmines. And it still hasn't. Uh, there's just a proposal that's really coming 
uh, back with us uh, this year. Hopefully, there's going to be some movement at the UN, but it's you know varied from export to trade and illicit arms, and uh, I don't expect that we're going to see any traction on that issue, at least in my time, in terms of any kind of getting to zero. This speaks to a second related kind of issue, which is <coughs> explaining variations in success of the receptions of norm pushed by their advocates in terms of how well those norms fit or resonate with a culture in which they're trying to be advocated in. That is, what's the cultural context? All other things being equal, this thesis of the importance of cultural match, as Jeff Chuckle has put it, and other scholars, uh, seems to have pretty good support in the literature as long as we don't use it too statically, because after all, what you're trying to do typically with an advocacy campaign is change cultures. So you don't want to sort of use it statically, oh, they're different, therefore there's going to be resistance. Um, but there all will be resistance to any advocacy campaign, on, and often on cultural grounds. This is a second reason why in the small arms and light weapons issue, uh, I thought 10 years ago, and I still think today, that you're not likely to see traction. Uh, after living in the U.S. Yeah, for over a decade and appreciating the gum culture that resides there, I thought this was not the winner that anybody wanted to pick, and it isn't the winner. And the U.S. isn't the only gum culture around the world. If you've been to South Africa, Serbia, any other places uh, where it's similarly going to be a very tough road. Okay. <coughs> One specific hypothesis out in the literature, Keck and Sinking, I think, have made this most well-known, is that the issues that are likely to get the broadest appeal across, across the most cultures is those dealing with bodily harm to innocence. It's hardly guaranteed success. After all, we're all familiar with the uh, starving children in poverty. Uh, but all other things being equal, it tends to be uh, more effective. Uh, than many other <coughs> techniques. And it's been pretty powerful in many initiatives. As a Canadian traveling to Europe, well, we could talk about any number of issues, but I can't resist talking about the one that Europeans are currently bashing over the heads of Canadians. That is, of course, our beautiful little seal pups. Uh, what more innocent creature could you get than that? And then what more horrifying result can you get to get campaigners up in arms? And what's done to those seals uh, to create fur pelts and nice little fur boots. The exact same thing has been done on campaigns <laughs> like the landmines campaign. You take the innocents, and I'm hardly using the most gruesome pictures that the campaigners use, uh, believe me, um, and the cluster munitions campaign followed uh, this very same tactic to great effect. This is a pretty robust finding in the literature. And one thing I'm interested in, and I'd love to hear if there are people who know more or a lot more about this than I do, I was talking to a, a biologist, a neurologist in uh, Canberra two years ago, and he said that there's emerging evidence in the biological sciences uh, of a physiological basis for empathy. That they're actually doing some research that if you're uh, not only uh, suffering trauma yourself, but if you're seeing trauma happen, that there can actually be a shortcut in, in the neurological pathways. And maybe some of you know more about that. I'd be interested to hear uh, what you do know about that. These are important because these are mechanisms which help us understand why these kinds of tactics actually seem to work. And 
those advocate, advocating for campaigns use them all the time. The landmines uh, campaign, what you often see are uh, campaigners trying to personalize the issue. So you take members of parliament to landmine fields, or you take them to the hospitals where the victims are. Or what you see often at the diplomatic conferences for landmines and cluster bombs, no diplomat could get into the diplomatic halls without walking by amputees who would have their limbs all blown off by these weapons. It's a pretty arresting sight. It's very much in your face. The campaigners would typically hand the delegates roses as they walk by, and it's pretty gripping, and it really personalizes the issue. So it's a very interesting finding in the literature that I think we need to pay attention to. There's a second finding um, that all other things being equal, if you can piggyback a new initiative and a new norm onto a norm that's already pretty widely accepted, all other things being equal, your chances are probably better. I call this process grafting. And we have lots of examples, again, in the literature that uh, testified to the success of this. In the case of landmines, it was clearly grafted on the discrimination norms, non-combatant immunity and the just war uh, doctrine. But also quite effective uh, in my interviewing on that issue was that the argument was made, well, we've already banned this one indiscriminate weapon, chemical weapons. These are just like them. And that won over quite a few people, particularly in the military establishment. Oh, well, I guess we actually have been limited by our governments what we can use in the military. So it wasn't so revolutionary once you could piggyback it on something that had already been banned by governments, didn't let their militaries use it. That's an interesting story because chemical weapons itself was built on a taboo against poison, which was built up over the centuries. And the, the landmines taboo, in turn, then provided the grounds for their cluster munitions quick success. So a great story there of this technique. We have lots of other examples, talking about getting to zero in modern day slavery. Lots of scholarship on uh, the slavery of uh, previous centuries and decolonization and these techniques being used. Uh, Audie Plotz's work on apartheid sanctions, if you want to talk about zero and racism. So there's lots of examples in the literature of this uh, phenomenon, so I won't say anything more. One thing that I'm very interested in talking about uh, in the Q&A, though, is the health frame. And I've become quite intrigued with this because uh, there's kind of a double movement going on. On the one hand, you find that uh, there are some famous examples of issues that once they got framed as a health or medical kind of issue, you got more traction on it than when it was seen as an arms control, defense, disarmament issue, or an environmental issue. The Limited Test Ban Treaty is one of the famous examples of this. Uh, the Ozone Treaty, where you frame an issue now as having to deal with threats to human health. And all of a sudden, you get rapid movement on it. What I find interesting about this is that right now, you're seeing the opposite movement. You're seeing people in the medical field actually reaching to other frames. I'm always, I'm always thinking, why? This one works so well. Just stick with your medical frame. But they're frustrated by the lack of success they sometimes have. So they're poaching on human rights frames, for example. And in HIV AIDS, there's a lot of this going on. Human Rights Watch is now including this after resisting it for a long time. Because they've been criticized for not dealing with social uh, economic rights. And so they've moved into this area. I don't think we have a lot of great data yet. In fact, one of our PhD students in our department is doing her uh, dissertation on this subject to try and figure out what the implications of this are. Is there more success going one way or another 
but it's certainly one that many of you in the audience hopefully will have a lot to say about in the Q&A. Relatedly, those of you in the field of international relations would be familiar with the securitization literature. And this is interesting because it's a very different kind of hypothesis. The health frame essentially says, depoliticize something and you'll get more success. Make it neutral, make it a medical health issue, but not a political divisive kind of issue. Securitization literature says the opposite. If you want to get traction on an issue, make it as politicized as possible. Make it a high issue of national security. That's when you'll get movement on something. So it's almost the exact opposite kind of idea. It's just that usually moving something to securitization doesn't necessarily mean international cooperation, quite the opposite. But there are some successes, and the chemical weapons taboo, in my mind, is one of those successes. Uh, there was a propaganda campaign in the 1920s, mostly in Britain and the US. It was mostly designed to scare people so that you could rearm against the potential <coughs> German threat down the road. But it scared people too much and they demanded the abolition of chemical weapons. Okay, so it backfired a little bit. But it's that kind of issue where you deal with something as a high security threat and all of a sudden you get fairly rapid action on it. In that case, the Geneva Protocol of 1925. Okay. This points to a final issue I'll talk about when in uh, agenda setting, which is the notion of crisis. Scholars have long noted the crucial role of crisis for crystallizing rapid action. And we're talking usually about big crises, wars, economic crises and depressions, revolutions, major disasters, that that's when you see major shifts and major learning going on in the international system. The problem is that crises rarely speak for themselves. You know, you look for sort of the proverbial you know, theater fire, right? where everybody's going to run for the exit. There's, there's no discussion about cultural norms. And, I mean, everybody gets the message real quick. We don't have a lot of those typically in world politics. There's a lot of contestation over what counts as a crisis. And indeed, if we look at issues like HIV AIDS, what's crisis for some might not be a crisis for others, depending on your access to health care, medicines, wealth. Um, on global warming, all the scientists are telling us global climate change is supposed to be a crisis, but we're sure not acting like it. And I love Tom Toll's comic on this from the New York Times, where he compares it to that famous experiment of the frogs in boiling water. I'll let you read it. So even what's supposed to be a crisis scientifically doesn't necessarily translate into one politically. And as I was doing this, just in case there's any of you thinking along the same lines I was, of course, it's not an original <laughs> saying. This was said by a rock band about 30 years ago, but we just poach good ideas as academics, I guess. Okay. The point is on this issue of crisis is that I think a great opportunity was missed. Uh, with the anthrax attacks following the 9-11 attacks in the United States uh, for movement on the Biological Toxins Weapons Convention. That's the kind of crisis where advocates should really be mobilized to take advantage of. The Bush administration had a plan of what it wanted, and 9-11 gave it carte blanche and away they went. And they brilliantly executed an awful lot of that plan. But people advocating for biological weapons disarmament I think we're asleep at the wheel. That was a great opportunity to perhaps scare the daylights out of people, and rightfully so, of the potential of biological weapons. But it was missed. So I think any issue advocate has to be prepared to take advantage of a crisis when it happens. And we've had those crises. I would argue that the Indian and Pakistani nuclear tests were those crises. 
Uh, but they haven't been treated like that, or at least not successfully so. Why not? Well, part of that might have to do with our diplomatic dilemmas. So let me turn to the second major set of issues that I'm going to look at. You've got an issue off the ground, but the problem is some obvious players you'd like to have on your side are in opposition. They say, no way, we're not going to sign on. So what do you do? There's a basic choice involved of going ahead with a very strong core agreement among a smaller number of like-minded players, like-minded states, whatever other actors in the system are relevant. And then you hope to attract more states later. Or do you go with a watered-down, lowest common denominator agreement to get the broadest consensus and then maybe hope to build tighter agreements in future? That latter strategy is more familiar in many areas in environmental politics. You have a broad, pretty weak framework agreement just to get everybody at the table, and then you build it up. Ozone, uh, biodiversity, climate change would probably fit into that kind of model. Okay. Or do you go the ICC and the Landmine Convention model? Well, if people aren't going to agree to our hardcore commitments, forget it. We're going ahead without them. Two very different strategies. Which one's better? Okay. I'm going to lay out a few of the considerations that I think are at least uh, relevant. Should you proceed with initiative if a major power, even a, the dominant power in the system like the US and or other great powers, aren't going to go along with you? What are the pros and cons? Seems to me that one of the things against it in many areas is that parties can be at a severe disadvantage due, depending on the nature of the agreement. And that's pretty obvious in a lot of cases. You'll have some powers outside an agreement not restraining themselves while others are. This is why I would argue that weapons in space is probably a dead letter, not a good issue to try and uh, mount an advocacy campaign on. The US is dead set against uh, negotiating a treaty against placing weapons in space. And it makes no sense, in my view, for the rest of the world to go ahead and negotiate that convention, saying, well, we'll go ahead anyway, because it's the US that you want to try and restrain. There's a second argument against doing this, and that is proliferating treaties that nobody's going to abide by. It really undermines the whole notion of the legitimacy of international law, which international law, not exclusively, but to a great extent, relies upon for its power. There's a big controversy I want to just flag in the human rights area right now that uh, Jim Ron and Emily Hafner Burton, uh, among others, have instigated which is they've done some large-end studies and said, you know, all this case study literature that says all this issue framing and everything, you get human rights progress, they don't see it. They've done all these large-end studies, see who signed on to treaties, how do their human rights situations improve. They say no, if you look at it across the board. Yeah. So there's a big controversy right now. There's been lots of arguments and still ongoing research back and forth. Uh, on this issue. So I just wanted to flag it because I think it's extremely important. We don't yet know what the real answer is, I don't think. The alternative strategy then, uh, in this case, is you get framework agreements with broad buy-in. Hopefully you can tighten those up uh, down the road. But what about the other side of the argument? I think there's reasons to go ahead without major powers, and in some cases without the US as the dominant power in a given issue area. 
Because even if you give the U.S. everything they want, often they're not going to ratify the treaty anyway. It's almost impossible to get two-thirds of U.S. senators to ratify anything. I mean, my favorite example is the law of the sea. The U.S. Navy has been begging the Senate to ratify this treaty. But there's an instinctual aversion to ratifying treaties among a hardcore of conservatives in the U.S. And it's very difficult to do, even with the Navy begging them. They still won't do it. They think it's not in the U.S. national interest. Chemical, uh, comprehensive Test Ban Treaty, ICC, many examples of this. So the lesson is, well, go ahead, go ahead anyway. Because even if you give the U.S. everything they want, there's a small chance that they're actually going to ratify that treaty. More importantly, I think, the U.S. and other powers will still often comply with many important dimensions of those norms. And we have lots of empirical evidence of this. Okay? Lots of evidence in the chemical weapons case with the Geneva Protocol. The U.S. Senate didn't ratify that until 1975. This is a treaty from 1925, so that's a 50-year time frame. And that's the time frames you should be thinking about, okay? looking at U.S. ratification of treaties. Okay? Long time. Okay? Uh, but we see lots of good examples of this. The Comprehensive Test Ban Treaty. Not in the force, not ratified, but still being abided by. The Landmines Convention. With all the Bush administration did during his time in power, they didn't sprinkle around landmines in Iraq. No one seems to notice. That's a good thing. I don't want anyone to start talking about it. <laughs> the Biological and Toxins Weapons uh, Convention. Verification protocol for me would fall into this kind of argument. I think it would be okay to go ahead without the US. Barack Obama might renew energy into that verification regime. Uh, he may not. Uh, but I think there are good reasons to go ahead even if they don't. Because the US has its own very high interest in not seeing the use of those weapons. And as a result, I think you should go ahead anyway and see what you can possibly get. There's one last thing I want to mention on these issues, and this uh, on these issues, and that is a recent phenomenon of many campaigns, which is if you're going to negotiate an international treaty, you have no reservations. And reservations are an old uh, mechanisms of international law where you sign a treaty, but you attach an official reservation which says, "I abide by this treaty. I'm going to sign it, but." here's my interpretation of what my obligations are. Or I'm not going to actually comply with Article 10b, because I don't like that one. States have always done this. But a lot of recent initiatives, like the Landmines Convention, cluster missions, have said, you've got to either join or you don't join. There are no reservations allowed. I think we have to think very hard about this issue. Uh, on the one hand, it clearly keeps out states who would have joined otherwise, if they could have attached a reservation. On the other hand, it also explains why a lot of those states abide by it even when they haven't signed. They probably would have signed if they could have attached a reservation, and mostly live by it. Okay? So it's a bit of a double-edged sword that I think issue advocates have to really be uh, careful about. Finally, another argument uh, going ahead with treaties, even if you can't get some major players, you can obviously get change of governments down the road and change of leaders. You may, in fact, decide uh, to sign on later. Uh, you, of course, may get governments who may famously decide to unsign a treaty. We don't have a lot of examples of that, but we have the famous Bush administration unsigning the ICC. And one of my students is doing a study looking at the effects that that has had, because the social psychologists have studied something called source cue effects, and they find that depending on what the source is of an initiative, 
people might actually decide it's a bad idea because of who's talking about it. Okay? So there's some anecdotal evidence in the ICC case, for example, that some people decided, you know what, the ICC must be a good idea because Bush unsigned it. Okay? So just to be in opposition uh, to that source, ergo it must be the right thing to do. Okay? We don't have great info on that yet, uh, but it's certainly an intriguing possibility. Let me conclude this section by talking about what I think are some problems with talking about going to zero. And the major problem is that it goes against the grain of what I've really come to see as the objective of many of these kinds of initiatives after studying them for quite a while. A major problem, in my view, of the way that opponents of many initiatives, like the Chemical Weapons Convention, the Biological Weapons Verification Regime, NPT, the Comprehensive Test Ban Treaty, the way those arguments are always put is you have to get zero. You have to get perfect compliance and verification or else it's dangerous. You're going to get taken advantage of somebody that's going to cheat. Sometimes those are sincere. Sometimes it's clearly just a ploy to make sure that the agreement doesn't come about. You have to insist on perfect verification and perfect compliance. Okay. So one has to be careful because you can simply play as an advocate in getting to zero right into the hands of proponents of a given initiative. And we've seen that happen many times. One of the most interesting examples uh, that's happened in the last little while is on efforts to try and get international agreement on human cloning. Probably some in the room who know much more about this. I'm happy to talk about it. And I'll learn from you in the Q&A. My own view is that typically in these issues, what we're looking for are acceptable levels of compliance. Zero is a really tough thing, and that's why a bit tongue-in-cheek the title of my talk. If you look at any of the regimes I've been talking about, you don't actually have zero. That doesn't mean I don't think they're worthwhile. You don't have you know, perfect compliance in possession uh, with these weapons regimes, but the only one you have is perfect compliance with nuclear weapons use. And that one, we don't have a treaty. It's the one that we don't have a treaty for. All the rest, we have treaties, and you have various levels of non-compliance. Okay, so a bit of a puzzle, part of the reason why people are pushing towards uh, a nuclear non-use convention. Let me finish the talk then by raising just a couple of ethical considerations. And these come out of my uh, recent work, which was sparked by my landmines research, We'd, I was involved in a little bit of a dog and pony show at one point with <coughs> key members of the campaign. There'd be Jody Williams from the <coughs> NGO community and a government official and myself as an academic giving three different sides of the issue. And we expected to be harshly criticized by realists who said this is stupid, it won't work, no one will sign it, even if they do, they'll violate it. We fully expected that. But what shocked all of us were the criticisms we got from the left side of the political spectrum. And the criticism was, you know what you guys are doing? You're just making war more legitimate. You take an uneasy target, you get rid of one weapon, you make it seem like international law is doing something, making war more humane, but it makes war more feasible, because now it's more humane. And I was kind of shocked by this. And so was the government person involved, because he saw himself as a critical theorist who actually got into government and was trying to make things happen. But it raised for me a serious question. It's how do you know when you've reached an ethical limit? How do you know if you've gone too far? How do you know if you're being too naive and too idealistic? 
I think it's a really interesting problem. I think we have a lot of good ways now with all the research we have on how we get moral norms to give us additional leverage on those ethical questions. Because often those ethical judgments hinge in some respect on an empirical argument about what's possible. Well, how do you know? How do you know what's a limit? How do you know what's possible or not? We have lots of examples of side effects of norms, which we have to be careful of. I want to just highlight something that's come out of the Constructivist Research Program, which I find very interesting, uh, which hasn't been highlighted much previously in the literature, which is if you're going to engage in a campaign for a new issue, you've got to be aware of what constructivists call the constitutive effects of norms. That is, norms are typically trying to regulate your behavior. Don't do this or limit that. But what they're also often involved in is producing certain types of actors or certain types of identities or legitimating other kinds of behavior. And a classic example is the chemical weapons taboo. What the chemical weapons taboo did, even as it delegitimized, very importantly, that one category weapon, it participated in a larger discourse which legitimized so-called conventional weapons. And somehow makes it seem okay, perfectly okay, without question, to burn and blow people up as a way of killing them as opposed to using poison gas. There's another great example today, which is the whole rogue state discourse about nuclear weapons. And I find this very dangerous. The issue now, too often, in nuclear weapon states is not having nuclear weapons. It's, are you a responsible nuclear weapons power or not? Right? India was welcomed into the fold as a responsible nuclear state. Well, no one runs around today saying, we're a responsible anthrax state. I'm a responsible bubonic plague state. And it underscores the difference of how that discourse in the nuclear weapons arena, which is why I think it's in crisis, has shifted from the weapon itself being the problem to now being the possessor of that weapon being the problem. Okay? I think we have to get back uh, to the weapon being the problem. And perhaps a Nobel Peace Prize the last week might help. Uh, as well as a nuclear weapons convention. That remains to be seen. Okay. And I'll just close today on thinking about the larger structural critique of weapons bans. And it's an argument in generic form that can be played out anywhere. It can be played out with arguments about poverty, poverty alleviation. Is that actually just propping up the broader system of capitalism, which is actually the problem? Okay. It's this broad kind of structural critique. And the same thing with norms of warfare. And what I've argued in my recent book is I'm not persuaded by the uh, critical theoretical critique because we got good empirical evidence that these norms have made a difference. There's not perfect compliance. But for me, every limb saved from a cluster bomb or landmine makes it worth it, especially if those efforts can't be shown to impede, perhaps, larger structural changes. The problem is I don't know how we can answer that question. If any of you have ideas, let me know. And the question is, to what extent are individual zero campaigns on landmines, chemical weapons, biological weapons, nuclear weapons, how do those contribute to the larger structural project of delegitimizing war? It's a bit of a chicken and egg problem, probably. I don't know how to answer that in any kind of robust way. If you have ideas, I'd love to hear it. Thanks. Great, thank you very much, uh, Dave. Not only was that absolutely impeccably timed to the minute, um, but I think you've done a, an absolutely um, fantastic job at, of 
setting up some of the issues around how we think about getting to zero uh, in a way that's relevant not only to nuclear weapons or the weapons uh, control more generally, but in terms of some of the dilemmas faced by campaigners. And I, I'm particularly interested in these uh, ethical questions that you raised in your, uh, in your last slide. I agree with you that the, you know, the question of how to answer those questions is absolutely fundamental. Um, I also agree with you that I don't have any good ways of, of answering that, um, but some of the empirical techniques that you were discussing in your, in your talk do sound very, very suggestive. I'd like to now um, hand over to Teresa, who's going to um, take about 10 minutes, um, give me a response and introducing some, uh, some things which will then open up to, uh, to discussion. Thank you. Thank you very much and thank you, Richard, um, for your talk. It's a pleasure to be here and thank you to the, um, the school and to the um, Centre for, for the Institute for the invitation to be here. Um, I want to make two broad points in my response um, because I'm conscious of us um, sticking to time. Um, and those, just to flag those, um, the first one would come under the heading of disarmament as humanitarian action. So just, and I want to connect that to the idea of getting to zero. And the second point, I want to articulate some ambivalence that I have about this absence of a key player problem. I'm, I'm torn over and back, so I'll be very keen to get some reaction to that, um, to that thought. Now, before I get on to those main issues, can I first of all just flag that I um, really agree and endorse um, Richard's ultimate conclusion that for all the ethical, practical, strategic, tactical problems that there might be involved in getting to zero campaign, um, it is a campaign that is trying to alleviate the problem. And even if there is only very modest success, I think that um, that is significant. And I'm reminded when I hear Richard talk of um, an advertising campaign that they had in New Zealand um, a year or so back for World Vision or Christian Children's Fund or some such thing on the back of the buses. And it said, you know how you sponsor a child for $50 a month or whatever it is here. And the ad ran, um, $50 a month isn't going to change the world or something like that. That's right, $50 a month isn't going to change the world but it could change his world, and here is the picture of the noble person that you're going to help. And I think really that that's the idea encapsulated um, in sort of the ultimate conclusion, so I, I wholeheartedly endorse that. Um, but more importantly, I want to endorse his paper and his thinking um, for a much more fundamental reason, and it's because his paper is um, thinking at a, a really meaningful level about getting to zero, which of course is important in the immediate context of this seminar series, so I think that that's great, exactly what you said, David. But I think that in weapons world, um, it's actually, there. I don't think it's an overstatement to say that we could be at something of a crossroads, and I think that some really proper thinking about getting to zero campaigns are important. So Richard himself has already alluded to this, if we take the blueprint, if you like, or the model of the Landmines Convention, and there was what I might unkindly refer to on occasion as sort of self-congratulatory reflection of the civil society groups that were involved in that. And with good reason, that was a success on, a ma on you know, on many, on, in many respects, that was a success. And as Richard has talked about, the cluster munitions campaign came not immediately on the heels of it, but it did come, it was born out of that, um, it was modelled on that. 
And out of that, a year or so ago now, there's been a lot of workshops and seminars, particularly among civil society who were campaigning in both of those campaigns, sort of lessons learned workshops and so on. And they identified, in fact, many of the same criteria that Richard started his talk with. You know, so is it a clear, simple message? Have we got a cultural fit? And so on. Um, but the problem with that is that they don't go any further than those strategies saying you need a simple message, you need to have a cultural fit. They don't go any further. So they don't at all get into discussing the questions about the diplomatic dilemmas and the ethical considerations. And I think that they're really important. And I think that that's a really important contribution um, that your work is making. So moving to this issue then of disarmament as humanitarian action. Um, so in, under the heading ethical considerations, um, Richard raises the question really, well, what if zero isn't enough? Are we then implicating or um, sort of reaffirming the whole structure of resort to violence in order to resolve our disputes? Um, and it's that question really that I think if we take disarmament as humanitarian action seriously, we might have some kind of a way to think about this. So what is disarmament as humanitarian action? In fact, Richard's talk is imbued with the idea that disarmament is humanitarian action. But in fact, that's not the orthodox view. The orthodox, or we might say the 20th century view of disarmament is that it's about state security. It's about the states. So it's interesting that you say, we need to take it back to the weapons. We need to, the problem isn't about the states. But Disarmament has generally been considered a state problem, not a question of human security. But of course it is a question of human security in that these weapons do um, cause, in the phrase, bodily harm to innocents. Okay, so the fallout to civilians um, by using these weapons. So this idea of humanitarian action, um, it isn't a new idea, but it has gained some impetus, I think, in the last 10 or 15 years. UNIDIR, the United Nations Institute looking at disarmament um, research and disarmament, um, launched a big project about it in 2004 and made several little publications starting to think through this idea or this way of looking at disarmament. Um, and the Princess Diana campaign and landmines is the um, quintessential example of it, um, so that landmines are a humanitarian issue. So reframing it. Now, if we just stop for a minute, how does that relate to getting to zero? Well, if we take disarmament as <coughs> humanitarian action seriously, really seriously, in terms of getting to zero, then it isn't that we, we say, well, what weapon is next? And if we're going to go to small arms now, then does that you know, um, legitimize something else? But if we took it seriously and stopped looking at classes of weapons and instead looked at the impact on civilians, so any explosive weapons in an urban area, whether that's an explosive remnant of war, whether it's a landmine, whether it's just an ordinary old bomb, okay? But anything that's going to disturb the principle of discrimination in law of armed conflict. Of course, that brings together ever closer international humanitarian law and arms control law. Um, but probably only the lawyers would have a problem with that. So I think that maybe one way of thinking about this ethical limit issue is um, to, to take the humanitarian focus very, very seriously and then we can move the debate maybe along without actually having to sort of utter revolutionary thoughts like trying to get rid of war altogether. 
Let me just, um, in the few minutes remaining tonight, flag a second point, um, and this is more to um, sort of express some ambivalence. And that's the question about taking the initiative without the major players. And Richard has set up some of those um, pros and cons in his talk. And of course, as he says himself, um, he has other, you know, there are other things that he could discuss. But one thing, um, as I was listening to that, um, I, I, it raised for me um, a perspective or a sort of something that has troubled me for some time. And a getting to zero campaign by necessity means leaving out a major player, whether that's the United States, or whether it's Pakistan, or whether it's North Korea, or whether it's a group of non-state actors. That's what it means, because otherwise the multilateral framework that was set up would be dealing with the problem, okay? So in the disarmament area again, usually that's where a group of like-minded states run off to Oslo, or Ottawa, or Oman maybe next, whatever. Um, and they, the group of like-minded states talk together, okay? And so we might applaud that in the first instance, we think we got it done, we got things done, okay? We got things done. Well, let's think about, on the other side of the page, getting things done, the Proliferation Security Initiative, which many of you will be really familiar with, but it essentially was an initiative that arose out of concerns about um, shipments of illicit materials. So, um, what started it in 2002 was a discovery of some Scud missiles being shipped. And so a group of like-minded states, at the behest of George Bush, set up this proliferation security issue. <coughs> not a formal organization, not a formal treaty, no records, no access by civil society, and they were getting the job done of intercepting shipping in territorial waters. Now, we could debate the legal rights and wrongs of that. What I'm just saying is that, for me, when I start reading about this, I think, whoa, wait a minute, we need to deal with this in a multilateral setting, we need to have a little bit more transparency, I don't like this. But actually the answer is, well, it's a group of like-minded states and they stepped outside the traditional multilateral framework to get the job done. So how can I, on the one hand, applaud the landmines like-minded states getting the job done, and then on the other hand raise concerns. Is it the case that we only want multilateralism when we like the ends to which it is working, or we think it's suiting us exactly? Is multilateralism an end in itself? Has it got some inherent values? I think it does have an inherent value, and I think that inherent value is it gives um, us diverse voices. Those voices might not be voices that we want to hear always, but it gives us diverse voices. So we might, if we're able to move forward, reach a better decision. Um, I'm out of time, so I'm actually going to stop. Yeah. That's great. Thank you very much, Jess. It's a very, very interesting question to, uh, to finish on. It connects also very much to the, uh, the ethics thing that Dick finished on. Um, so we have uh, about half an hour for discussion now.